pretty good big storm coming through uh, Montana and Idaho and then on out into the plains. It's talking about snow accumulating 5 to 12 inches up in the higher elevations, but where we're headed is down about 3,500 feet because most of Montana is fairly low in elevation in the valleys, not like Colorado where it starts at 5,000. Uh, and they only look to get maybe an inch, two inches where we're going, and the ground's warm enough, it'll probably be gone in a day. So it's not too bad there. It's, the only thing I worry about is a silly millimeter on the highway. That's the only thing to be concerned about. But down in the valleys, it may be mostly rain or a very light snow that quickly melts, so I don't think there'll be too much problem. And uh, by the time we hit Salt Lake, it'll be... Uh, about sun up or close to it, and uh, then the sun melts it off very rapidly if there's any left on the highway. So I don't really foresee much problem, but uh, nonetheless, it's nice to have some prayers and angels along. I uh, I like that that part. Well, there have been some developments on the international scene, and I'm trying to kind of keep up with that and keep you apprised as well with a little analysis. You might remember I said, I think during the feast, I don't remember exactly, but maybe a week or two before, that uh, NATO would break up, that Ephraim and Manasseh would be fighting each other, and they'd both be fighting the Jews, and there you have the main tribes of Israel fighting with each other, and the rest of the brothers then obviously would be involved as well. Uh, and with the pressures that are being put on, uh, this is now beginning to happen. Um, Turkey has been a part of NATO, and I don't think for any moment that Turkey is Israelite uh, in background and ethnicity. But they have now begun to work with the Russians, and it appears that they're going to uh, be a marketer for Russian oil and work with Russia as opposed to NATO. And you don't sit in the middle and be a part of NATO and be working with Russia around the corner. So it would appear that Turkey will be shortly out of NATO, so there's your first big crack, one of the nations actually leaving, though it not, is not an Israelite nation. And along with that, I think you've already heard that the Arabs are making uh, noises of joining BRICS, uh, Brazil, Russia, China, South Africa, and India, uh, which will be a major rift as well. Uh, because the petrodollar has been used for Arab oil all these years, and now they'll be taking other countries' money, particularly Russia and China's money, instead of the U.S. dollar, and the world will no longer depend on the U.S. dollar. Now, we've been seeing this starting to happen, and we've always bombed the nations that tried to do this, but it's getting to be where the bigger ones are doing it, and there's not a whole lot we can do about it, except try to defeat them in some way or another, which we're trying to do with Russia, using Ukraine as a proxy to do that. 
but there's been another break in that story as well, in that Iran made a deal and has now shipped uh, cargo loads of drones and missiles to Russia. So Iran is joining the Russian side in an open way. Now, to me, there could be implications there because I think Daniel 8 is talking about America being the goat from the West that doesn't touch the ground but flies uh, and is a danger to other nations. And it says that that goat would break the, the horns of the Medes and the Persians. We already did the Medes in Iraq, I think, pretty well. And Iran calls themselves the Persians, and probably that is true. So it says that they will break, the goat will break the horn of the Persians and then have its horn broken. So it might be that Iran joining Russia at this point may be what precipitates our attack upon Iran because we don't want Russia to be aided in any way by anyone. So you can't take on China who's aiding Russia at this point. They're too big without having a worldwide nuclear holocaust. Uh, but you could attack Iran as something kind of on the side that would push at Russia and China but not attack them directly. So who knows where that will go. Uh, I'm sure that the policymakers in the Pentagon pr primarily and behind the scenes, those who are directing this whole thing, uh, see what's happening to the petrodollar and they are in part causing it because they want America destroyed. We're the only thing standing in the way of their new world order. So they're doing things behind the scenes to manipulate and cause us to go. And these things are now beginning to happen uh, fairly rapidly as you see the cracks in NATO and people are aligning now with Russia and China and the BRICS nations. So we'll see where that goes, but it can't be good for the United States, or at least the United States surviving as it currently is. And that leads us back into Isaiah. Uh, what we went through before the feast, I skipped ahead to get some more of the millennial type scriptures, but uh, we were reading in chapters 10, 11, 12 about how the Assyrian would come and how God would protect his people, his remnant, uh, in Zion. And chapter 12 is a praise to God that we can trust in him and that he will take care of us. It ends in verse 6 by saying, Cry out and shout, you inhabitant of Zion, for great is the Holy One of Israel in the midst of you. He'll come and dwell with us, as he says there in Zechariah 2, and this is an affirm affirmation of that. He'll be right in the midst of us and taking care of us when the Assyrian begins to come into the land to destroy this nation. Then in chapter 13, uh, he turns from this theme and gets back to the destruction that is just ahead. And he called, in chapter 13, he calls it the burden of Babylon. Now, this is both specific and a broader generality in those terms. 
I think we've seen very clearly, and I did a whole series of sermons on it, that the United States is the leader of the whole Babylonian system. She's the great whore of Revelation 18 and the great whore of Ezekiel 16. God calls Israel a whore, and then he divorced her, and that divorce is still in effect. He wants Israel to return to him and be forgiven, but we're not doing it. And as a result then, here at the end, there's going to be another punishment come, because he gave us a massive opportunity to turn to him. He brought Ephraim and many from the other tribes of Israel back into the original promised land, which had been expanded. The original promised land was just from about Salt Lake down to the Grand Canyon. And he said he could expand that, which I believe he certainly did, to essentially the whole North American continent. Uh, Canada is primarily Israelite. The U.S. is Israelite. And you might even say Mexico. Now, why do I say that? Because it is a mixture of Israelites and Asians and Ham, or the black people, that have produced the brown races. So, even in Mexico, you have a great amount of uh, Semitic blood. <clears throat> so, it's a mixture of the races, is what it is, but they were still included on the southern part of the continent that God gave to Ephraim and some of the other nations here at the end. Now, what kind of an opportunity did he give? Israel had been taken into captivity along the Mediterranean, around it, had migrated later up into Western Europe, where the tribes had been pretty much ever since. And then because God had taken 430 years away in the sojourn in Egypt, it wasn't all in captivity, especially at first, but they still had left their land and gone there, and God kept them there for 430 years to the day. So it was a very specific period of time. And then you have that prophecy in Ezekiel, which shows that Ezekiel was to lay on his side for 390 days for the tribes of Israel and 40 days for Judah, a total of 430 days. And it says that each day is as a year. Where do you find that in history? You can go back to history and you don't have anything, you don't have much of record of Israel from Christ on. The world does not know where Israel is today. They have no clue where the twelve tribes are. They know where there's a few Zionist Jews and uh, that's about it. They have no cognizance of where it is. So we have Western Europe and North America who don't know who they are, have no clue. But God opened up the original promised land and gave us 430 years of a golden opportunity to take a nation, a co-continent basically, 
that was mostly uninhabited, unpolluted, had returned to its natural state, just a few tribes of Indians here and there who were partly Israelite to start with, as it turned out, and had been from before that. They had intermarried way before Israel was even taken to Africa and the Middle East and were left behind. That always happened when Israel was taken captive. A certain percentage of the population left and there are always some behind. Even when Nebuchadnezzar invaded and took Jerusalem, he only took so many to Babylon and the rest he left there with uh, Nathaliah, Hezekiah, well, the white name won't quite come. Gab, uh, started with a G anyway. Gamaliel? No. Who am I, what am I trying to say? Gedaliah. I knew he'd come. Somebody told me. Uh, in any case, always some were left behind. And there were in that day as well. And when he opened up this continent, I think he moved primarily Ephraimites who had been scattered through Western Europe over here. Now, there may have been other nations of peoples that came as well, but it didn't matter. They had all been there in a melting pot in that sense in Europe and had different languages. Uh, he said the Jews would be scattered throughout. So, there are Jews who speak one language, Jews who speak another language because of where they were. Same could have been true of Ephraimites as well. So if you say, well, my background's German because my great-great-grandparents came from Germany, maybe. Um, maybe they're not German. Maybe they're Ephraimites. I don't know. Uh, that doesn't matter because in the New Testament, all races have opportunity of salvation. So whether you're specifically this or that really is neither here nor there, except that once God chose Abraham, he made promises to him, and he's fulfilling those in spite of us. And he gave us another opportunity to live as Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Moses, and others did for 430 years on a new continent where we had every opportunity to turn to God and be thankful and worship Him. And almost from the time that that happened at Roanoke until 2017, it was downhill all the way. All the way. Until we've come to the point we are the worst nation on earth in terms of most moral uh, capacities, most social and cultural things, and it is our paganism that is being exported to the rest of the world. Uh, wherever you go on the earth, it's American entertainment products, TV shows, music. They have some of their own, but it's mostly America who is causing degeneracy throughout the world. So instead of going God's way, we went Satan's way. And I think that ended in 2217, or just in 2017, when that eclipse occurred in August. And it didn't say there would be sudden destruction right after. Ezekiel goes on to say, it's very near, it's come, it's very near when the 430 are ended. And it won't be the echoing again of the mountains, 
And here we find ourselves now coming apart at the seams. Uh, within the nation and the build-up around the world in a coalition to destroy us. So, judgment has been passed. I'm firmly uh, in belief of that. And it is now a matter of the judgment coming, and it's coming now a little at a time, and it's speeding up day by day. So that's where we are. And chapter 13 picks it up there. Because overall, the world is Babylon. God is not the author of confusion, but Satan is. <clears throat> and the scriptures make it clear, he's the present ruler of this world. Virtually everything on this earth is done Satan's way now, not God's way. And Satan has many devious counterfeits of anything good. So, some things might appear pretty nice, but underneath there's rot. And there's ungodliness. So America represents the point on that sphere. We are the leader of Satan's system today. And the rest of the world resents us. And God is going to destroy us. Now, he takes a more general approach in this chapter and the next one. <clears throat> And includes not only us as the head of Babylon, but he expands it to include the whole world. So this burden is against the head of Babylon, and it's against the whole Babylonian system and Satan himself, as we shall see. So this, after he encourages his remnant people who will obey him, and says, I'll dwell among you, and I'll take care of you, and I'll protect you, then he turns and shows what he's about to do here in chapter 13. The burden of Babylon, which Isaiah the son of Amos did see, lift you up a banner upon the high mountain. Now that's sword rattling. That's picking up flags and waving them. Lift up a banner. Uh, this is what peoples do before they go to war. They announce it with sword rattling and flag waving and all this kind of thing. This is historically the way it's always been done. Exalt the voice to them. In other words, yell and shout. Shake the hand. What do you do sometimes before you attack somebody? You shake your fist at them. This kind of rhetoric being used here. That they may go into the gates of the nobles. So what he's saying here is raise up a flag and rattle your swords, you're going to go into the gates of the nobles. Why? Because nobles here would be those people who are in charge, the ones who set policy, the ones who make the laws, the ones who govern, if you will, and they represent the people in that sense. So if you're going to destroy something, where do you go? You should go to the head. I mean, all my snake pillin' I ever did, I never chopped the tail off and said, okay, that's good, we're, we're, we're fine now. I always tried to hit that head first. If you're going to kill a snake, go for the head. If you're going to destroy a country, go for the head. That's why I always knew we were not trying to win in Vietnam. All you had to do was just bomb Hanoi to the ground, 
kill the head of the snake and it would have all been over. <clears throat> Except that the real head was somewhere else in communist countries. But nonetheless, if you wanted to get rid of Vietnam, you had to cut the head off, and we never did. So God knows how to go about this. <laughs> I have commanded my sanctified ones. Now, this is not speaking of those sanctified spiritually here. He's already dealt with them in chapters 3 through 12. Now he's dealing with someone he has sanctified. That, it can be a religious term, but it only means set aside for a purpose, a reason. So sanctified here means he has commanded some that he set aside for a purpose. <clears throat> I have also called my mighty ones for my anger. Now he's made it clear that he's angry at Israel because we have not taken the lead. We have not been godly. We have gone the way of the world and the devil. So he's very, very angry with Israel. So he's calling these people up, and we'll see why here in a moment. Even them that rejoice in my highness. Now these people he's gathering will rejoice in the power, the opportunity to destroy that God is given. Let me use a small example to illustrate that. Well, it's not a small example, but uh, don't you think when God told Satan, I have a servant here, he's quite a man really, Job, I, I love him, I think an awful lot of him, but I would like you to torment him for me. Now, did God rejoice in God's highness, his might at that point? Oh, yeah, because he had not been able to touch Job and others because of God's power. And then God says, I think I'll turn you loose on Job. Oh, yeah, here we go. He rejoiced in that opportunity, I'm sure. And boy, did he go after it. <laughs> The noise of a multitude in the mountains. Mountains can represent governments. So a noise in the multitudes in the mountains. So many soldiers, a big military led by governments. Like as of a great people, a tumultuous noise of the kingdoms of nations. Now, we can go to Psalm 83, and it lists a whole bunch of nations that will be involved in the destruction of Israel. And I'm not talking the Middle East. I'm talking about America and Canada and Western Europe and Australia and so on. But here, there will be a loud noise of the kingdoms of the nations gathered together. So God is going to allow them to be gathered together for His purposes. And the setting so far here is of war. The Lord of hosts musters the host of the battle. That tells you right there in explicit terms that this is someone, peoples who are sanctified for destruction, for battle, for war. 
How you, for the day of the eternal is at hand, it shall come as a destruction for the, from the Almighty. So what he's saying here is this gathering of nations is for the purpose of the end time destruction of first Israel, and then as the book of Revelation goes on and on, uh, Gentile nations as well, until there are very few people left at all by the end of the Holocaust. So this is a general call here for the nations, companies of nations, alliances, to come together to fight. And we see the nations that are involved already, we're already at war with Russia through Ukraine. And there are now allies attaching themselves to the BRICS nations. Uh, when it was mentioned that the Arabs would join, there are also about another 30 nations that want to put an application to adjoin Russia and China and all these others. So it is a tumult and a company of nations that is rising up. They come from a far country, from the end of heaven, round the earth. Even the eternal and the weapons of his indignation to destroy the whole land. So who gets destroyed first? We could go through many scriptures and have to show that Israel is the first to go. We are the first objects of God's anger. Uh, we were given more, <coughs> and therefore more was expected of us. We failed. God gave us a full 430 years and passed the judgment. And now that judgment is beginning to take pass and to shape up to be a final great judgment. You see it happening. Now he says the day of the Lord is at hand. So it's obviously the last uprising, the last gathering of nations at the end of days. The day of the Lord. Now the day of the Lord can be defined as a finite period of time because Satan's anger is there, God's anger is there, and there comes a point where God takes charge and the day of the Lord may be a specific year. But this whole end time thing is being engineered by God and is a part of when he arises to do his mighty work. So, it's part of his overall taking charge. Satan has been in charge up till now. Now God is causing these people to come together so that he can begin to express his anger. And it is his anger against Israel that is causing us to go down. It's our sin against him that's caused this. So it is a part of his wrath, even though it isn't the greatest part of his wrath that will come later when billions are killed, but it is coming first against those people he chose to lead the world, and we have failed abysmally to do so. And the world resents it. So this is, this destruction on our nation and Western Europe is at God's hand. Now, as he often does, he will likely use Satan and his armies to do it. But make no mistake, God is behind all this. 
and is allowing Satan to bring these nations together to first punish Israel. That's the first thing on the docket. <clears throat> we are not going, I don't, you know, some people might say, well, we'll attack Russia and we'll whoop them. Or we'll attack China and we'll whoop them. I don't think many say that because they recognize the disparity between the power that we have and the power they currently have. That we couldn't do that. But there are a lot of Americans who think that some hero like Trump or somebody is going to stand up and lead us to a salvation. Wrong. Not when God says it's going to be the other way around. We know what is going to happen because God tells us. So God is behind this. Whatever he's talking about here in chapter 13, he's behind it. Therefore shall all hands be faint, and every man's heart shall melt. When this coalition of nations reaches a certain powerful point, Americans are going to begin to feel faint-hearted and scared, just like this says. And they shall be afraid. Pangs and sorrows shall take hold of them. They shall be in pain as a woman in birth. They shall be amazed one at another. Their faces shall be as flames. Can't believe it. They won't be able to believe it. You and I have been in this little cocoon for so long, and all the American people thinking there'll never be a war on our soil, and we will always come out ahead, and all of our movies had a hero that always came through and got rid of the bad guys at the end, and that is part of the American psyche. That's the way we think. So when this arises, and it's beginning to arise, we're seeing it. We're shipping nearly all our weapons to Ukraine. We have nothing left to defend this country with. And then you have other people sending weapons to Russia. And there's no doubt in my mind who's going to win this. Because God says the Assyrian will ascend in power and Europe will be weakened and destroyed. So we're not going to win this thing. And NATO is going to come apart. And we are going to be invaded. Very clear. Think about that. How many Americans would boo me off the stage if I said that? Nearly all of them. But that's what God says. So if God says it, you know what? I believe it. I stake my life on it. But God is doing exactly what he says he's doing. But Americans cannot read what you and I are reading today. They cannot read it and have a clue what it's talking about. Because they don't know who Israel is. They don't know who the Gentiles are. And if you don't know who the people are, how are you going to understand what it's saying about them? There are very, very few people who can pick this book up and have a clue what it's even talking about. I hope we realize how blessed we are. I hope that goes deep within our hearts and minds. 
But for no greatness of our own, weak in base, maybe, is our biggest claim to fame. God has opened our eyes to understand. What an incredible blessing. What an incredible opportunity. Most Americans have no opportunity, really, to repent truly of what they are and turn to the living God. Because they don't know who He is, they don't know who they are, and they don't have a clue what this book's talking about. They're lost. They have no chance at the moment. They'll get theirs in the millennium of the great white stone judgment. But God said, don't even bother to pray for them. They will not change. He knows that. He knows Israelites. Stubborn and rebellious. How do we know we're right? I just said a mouthful, you know. How do we know we're right? A lot of people read the Bible, and they don't get much out of it. They read the New Testament, a few verses there, and maybe they'll turn to Psalms and Proverbs if they need a little inspiration. And that's all they know. But we've studied it, up and down, back and forth, here, there, and everywhere, and God has opened our minds. And you couldn't open your own mind. The fact that you understand this, and you can read it, and it all fits. It's right. It can't be wrong. Because it doesn't matter where I go in this book, from Genesis to Revelation, everything ties together. It sounds like you're saying the same thing over and over, because it doesn't matter where you are, it's the same story. And you could not have that many authors writing that many books, thousands of years apart, and having everything completely fit together. That's impossible without God. So he inspired this book, and he opened your mind and inspired you to understand it. So how do I know we're right? Because God did it. <laughs> and I know that I would not have any understanding of this had God not put me in a place to learn it. Wouldn't have ever gotten it. I'd have been just like every other American out there. I'll get my gun, and I'll get my ammo, and I'm going to go get the bad guys. But that's not where I am. It's not where I'm going. God's going to take care of us, and the rest of it's going to happen regardless of how many guns they have. They just sent out an edict today that you can no longer buy, sell, trade a handgun in Canada for any reason. Can't sell them to each other if you already have them. Can't buy them. Can't bring new ones into the country. Uh, they just simply locked it all down. Now everybody up there is going to be completely safe because only the criminals will have guns. <laughs> oh my. Anyway, he says we're going to be full of sorrow and the pain and the grief will be like a woman in childbirth. That can be pretty tough. 
Uh, a lot of women have attested to that, and I've observed it, and didn't want to be there by any means if I could at all help it, and thankfully I won't be. I had one lady some years ago try to tell me that childbirth is natural, and if you breathe right and everything's fine, you're not going to hurt. Out of the hundreds of women I've talked to who have had babies, she's the only one that said that so far. Now, there may be ways to mitigate some of it, but did not God say that's the way it would be in Genesis? He's right and she's wrong. I'm sorry. <laughs> As usual. So it's going to be a time of great fear and pangs and sorrows. Verse 9, Behold, the day of the eternal comes, cruel both with wrath and fierce anger, to lay the land desolate, and he shall destroy the sinners thereof out of it. That includes pretty much the population, doesn't it? Sinners? <laughs> there you have it. For the stars of heaven, the constellations thereof, shall not give their light, the sun shall be darkened and is going forth, and the moon shall not cause her light to shine. Now, that's not in the initial beginning of God's wrath, but as it gets stronger and increases, you get to the point where it's going to be that way. Now, I think that's literal at some point, but when the sun starts going down on America, things start getting where you're like a woman in travail. Uh, it's a pretty dark day. So the sun might be shining, but the whole atmosphere is like it's not. And I will punish the world for their evil and the wicked for their iniquity. Now, he starts out, and he has this kingdom of nations coming against the leader of Babylon, I think, no doubt, because Isaiah 49 or Revelation 18 and Ezekiel 16 and other places show that. But Babylon is Satan's whole system, and God is angry with all of it, and Satan included. So the world is also being roped into this. So it starts out a little more specific, and then it includes not only the head of Babylon, but the rest of Babylon. Because it's, in Isaiah at least, it is a beginning of an explanation of what God's going to do to the world. Up to this point, he said to the church and the nation in chapter 1 that you're sick from the head to the foot. Then he goes and shows in chapter 3 on down through 12 how he's going to take care of his remnant people who will obey him. And then it starts into a broader subject of what he's going to do about the whole world situation. It's just that we're the first ones to experience his wrath. Then it comes on the others. Like a, you throw a rock in the pond, and you have ripples right around where the rock hit first, and then it ripples out till it goes across the lake. And that's kind of the way this is. It starts where the rock hits, and that's here. And then ripples out until it encompasses the hole. And I will punish the world for their evil, and the wicked for their iniquity, and I will cause the arrogancy of the proud to cease. And will lay the low and lay low the haughtiness of the terrible. So 
He's going to humble the whole world. It reminds me of Psalm 23. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I'll fear none evil because God is there to take care of me is kind of the way that chapter goes. And then I've seen t-shirts that people wear that say, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for I am the meanest blank blank in the valley. Now there's haughtiness and pride. A few will fear God, but a lot depend upon themselves. I will do what I need to do, and I will prevail, and there's an awful lot of pride. God hates pride, and he's going to get rid of it for the whole world. I will make a man more precious than fine gold. How fine, how precious is fine gold? Hard to find. Hard to get. Hard to keep. Pretty rare is a commodity on the earth. Well, he says he'll make a man more precious than that. Harder to find, in other words. Not very many of them around. Going to destroy the population. Even a man than the gold, golden wedge of Ophir, some of the finest gold around, and it's even more scarce, and finding a man will be that difficult. And it shall be as the chaste row, and as a sheep that no man takes up. Now, if you have a deer that's being chased by hunters, uh, he's in serious danger. And he says, men will be the same. He uses a different analogy here. Or is a sheep that's not taken up. You leave a sheep out by itself and don't put it in the corral. Uh, it makes it easy for the bears, the wolves, any predator that's around to destroy it. So a sheep that's left out pretty rarely, or pretty rare to find because it'll get killed. So he's showing how it will be with people. They shall every man turn to his own people and flee everyone into his own land. I've always liked that verse because we've had so many people coming into the United States to enjoy the American dream. And uh, God is going to turn it into the American nightmare. We still have thousands and thousands of people coming across our southern border every day. Every day. And it's going to come a point when they're going to turn tail and run right back where they came from because it's going to be worse here than it was there. They haven't quite reached that point yet because it's still better in many respects for some South American countries to come here than to stay at home. But that is going to be turned completely around because this is where it hits first and this is where it's going to be worse first. And people will turn around and leave. I'm headed back where I came from. Everyone that is found shall be thrust through. We're going to diminish the population. <coughs> we know. One-third by famine and pestilence. One-third by the sword. One-third taken captive and a sword after them. And will be few and far between. And anyone who is found will have a sword jab through him. 
and every one that is joined to them shall fall by the sword. So little groups of people will also fall. Their children also shall be dashed to pieces before their eyes. Do I have to elaborate? Take your baby and bash its head against the concrete wall is what they're going to do. It's sickening, but it's coming. Their houses shall be spoiled and their wives raped. All those Chinese and Russians and Arabs and all these other people coming into this country. There's another place that says to the American women, you want to show it? Okay, the whole world's going to see it. You not only have short see-through clothes, but you won't have no clothes. Because you'll be ravished and left bleeding on the ground. God means business. <clears throat> Behold, I will stir up the meads against them, which shall not regard silver, and as for gold, they shall not delight in it. They're going to be so excited to come in and kill us and destroy us that if you have gold or silver and offer it for your life, they'll laugh at you and kill you anyway. Some of our leaders may try to bribe them. won't work. Their bows also shall dash the young men to pieces, and they shall have no pity on the fruit of the womb. Their eyes shall not spare children. <coughs> what goes around comes around. <coughs> We're destroying millions of children on a regular basis in this country. Mercilessly killing babies. And they're going to come in and do to us what we have already been doing. What goes around comes around. In Babylon, the glory of kingdoms, this beauty of the Chaldees, excellency shall be as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. Now there's your comparison. It's going to be a total rout, complete destruction. Those who are left alive will be taken into slavery. It shall never be inhabited, neither shall it be dwelt in from generation to generation. Neither shall the Arabian pitches tent there, neither shall the shepherds make their folds there. It's going to be desolation. Now, how do we understand that in terms of of God returning Israel to their own land, which he originally gave, and inhabiting it, uh, because that's clearly to be done uh, in the millennium, in the great white throne judgment, that Israel will return to its own land. And here, it's talking about nobody dwelling there. I wonder if God is not going to make that Satanic shake Washington D.C. the lead the lead city the government of the U.S. <clears throat> like this maybe just D.C. itself will be absolutely desolate and no one dwell there in order to have a lasting commemorative a lasting warning 
But that's what happens to a people who deny God. I don't know, just a thought. Or maybe New York City, uh, which is, in some respects, they had a Babylon. Or maybe D.C. and New York both, who knows? Since this is speculation, I'll throw another one in there. Uh, I don't know. I don't know that I have that answer entirely. <coughs> we do know that he talked about Jerusalem being desolate for many generations and no man dwelling there. And that has been the case where the original Jerusalem is. Uh, no one lives on that hill. No one. And there's no sign that anybody's lived there for many generations. Not inhabited now. Nowhere. Even on the edges. It's back from it, there's a few houses, but not on it. Not anywhere. And yet, God says that then that's going to be turned around and it will be inhabited again in its own place. So, God puts these things on a place as he did Jerusalem, and it's been that way for many generations and still is, until his remnant go and restore it and build the temple in Jerusalem. The beast has got to have somewhere to defile. And there's no temple of God in the Middle East. And the Jews, if they build something, will be a temple of the Jews, not a temple of God. And I think they have precious little time left to do it if they're going to do anything at all. They haven't found a red heifer yet. Every heifer they find's got a black hair or a white hair somewhere. What a futility. That's not in the Bible. So I don't know exactly how he's going to fulfill this. This is just a question in my mind. Uh, if it's talking about the whole earth being Babylon, then it means that no one would dwell on the earth. We know that can't be true because it says we'll be living on the earth and reigning here over people. So it can't mean that. It could mean a part of Babylon that he set aside. That's why I speculate that he might set aside a small part of it and say this represented it and it will be this way. Don't know. We'll see. He means something and he knows what he means just because I don't know what he means exactly doesn't mean he doesn't. So then I wait to see what he means. But I trust him to know exactly what he's doing. That we have to do. John Reitenbaugh had a very good Berean, was it this morning's or yesterday's, in which he went through and showed what faith really is using Hebrews 11.1. 1. Uh, it's something he wrote in the past, not recently, but uh, showed how faith is belief in God in the beginning. You start believing in God, so you're having a certain amount of understanding of who He is. And there's not much of that on the earth today, as Christ said that it would be. But then He shows that that then, that belief that begins, increases over time to a level of confidence. Not just belief he's there, but confidence in him and his plan and his purpose and his word that it's true and it's going to happen. 
And then faith takes another step, which is uh, conviction and trust. Where you not only believe there is a God and begin to believe the things he says, and then you begin to have confidence in the things he says because you see things happening according to what he said. And then you come to the point where you have absolute trust in him. That whatever he says, he is going to do. And not Satan, not man, nobody can intervene with what God sets his hand to do. And it is that level of trust that you and I seek. Where we read something in here, and we can absolutely believe it. This is going to happen. And we look around at the earth that he has made, and the heavens that he has made, and we have absolute trust but somebody had to do it, and he's the only one that could have. Now, how much of that kind of trust is there on the earth today? And even among the few that he's called out, where are we in that process of belief and confidence and absolute trust in the living God? Very well done, Berea. Anyway, there's going to be some place that is going to be uninhabited from generation to generation. But wild beasts of the desert shall lie there, and their houses shall be full of doleful creatures, and owls shall dwell there, and satyrs shall dance there. And the wild beasts of the islands shall cry in their desolate houses, and dragons in their pleasant palaces, and her time is near to come, and her days shall not be prolonged. So this destruction is coming, and some of it is total destruction, with no one there from generation to generation. What generations are left? Those in the millennium and the great white zone judgment are the only ones that are ahead of us. So it's got to be speaking of that time. So let's go to 14 then, see how far we get. For the Lord will have mercy on Jacob and will yet choose Israel and set them in their own land. So here you have a follow-up that he's got a kingdom of nations coming against us, will be destroyed. There may be an example of an area that will not ever be inhabited again to remind us. But, He's going to restore them to their own land. First of all, his remnant to Zion and Jerusalem, and then all Israel that survives the Holocaust to their original land here to live and rule, or live and be ruled. And the stranger shall be joined with them, and they shall cleave to the house of Jacob. So God is again going to rule who, or by whom, all those who have obeyed him and have become spiritual Israelites, whether they were Jew or Gentile by blood, doesn't matter. If they're part of the 144,000, they'll be part of the blood of Christ, or of the bride of Christ, and they will have come from 
all peoples and nations. So that will be spiritual Israel, but he also will cause those physical descendants to come back to this promised land, and strangers will be joined to them. So they'll be the lead nation again, and the Gentile nations, or those who have been strangers to them, will come and dwell with them. But it won't be a matter of illegally coming in. It will be a matter of peace and security and peoples through the Spirit of God, not the Spirit of Satan, will live together in peace, no matter what their racial background. They'll be joined together and will cleave to the house of Jacob. And the people shall take them and bring them uh, to their place, and the house of Israel shall possess them in the land of the eternal for servants and handmaids, and they shall take them captives, whose captives they were, and they shall rule over their oppressors. And it shall come to pass in that day that the Lord shall give you rest from your sorrow and from your fear and from your hard slavery wherein you were made to serve. So he's going to send Israel into this, and we're quickly going there right now, and utter destruction, and then he's going to return in the millennium, and repentant Israel will be the lead nation, and others will come and actually serve them, it says. Those who defeated them will come back and serve them. Verse 4, that you shall take up this proverb against the king of Babylon and say, How has the oppressor ceased? The golden city ceased. Now he starts going into a dissertation about Satan himself. Because this is an end-time prophecy, and Satan is the one who is ruling Babylon today, and America and Britain have been his primary leaders of Babylon. We get destroyed first, and then what happens to him? When this holocaust and destruction of people, what God is going to use him to do, we read it on the last great day, he'll be taken and put in a bottomless pit and bound for a thousand years so he can have no influence. So, when this day of the Lord starts here, in verse 6 of chapter 13, and goes on down through our destruction and the destruction of the world, then he begins to deal with Satan, who is the one who caused all this. So, it's a broader picture than just one nation. It's Satan's influence over the whole world. Because Christ defeated him, you remember. And he will come back and rule the earth, and Satan will not be anywhere around. He'll be bound. So this is talking about the millennium then. So the real king of Babylon is the devil. We'll see it as we go down. How has the oppressor, he is the oppressor. He ceased to oppress. He's bound. The golden city ceased. <clears throat> The Lord has broken the staff of the wicked and the scepter of the rulers. He says he'll put down all rebellion in Revelation. He who smote the people in wrath with a continual stroke, he that ruled the nations in anger is persecuted and none hinders 
no one's going to hinder when Christ takes Satan and binds him and throws him in the pit. Everybody will say, yay, <laughs> at that point. And then what does that create? The whole world is at rest and is quiet. They bring forth into singing. Yes, the fir trees rejoice at you and the cedars of Lebanon, saying, Since you are laid down, no feller is come up against us. Hell from beneath is moved for you to meet you at your coming. It stirs up the dead for you, even all the chief ones of the earth. It has raised up from their thrones all the kings of the nations. Everybody that was with you will depart from you. Won't be around. So this is the putting away of Satan and the rejoicing of the earth and the people of the earth in him not being around. So it's clearly the beginning of the millennium. All they shall speak and say to you, Are you also become weak as we are? Are you become like us? The world will have been decimated and made poor and skinny and won't have anything. And Christ will come and offer them beauty and security and food and all the things that the beast offered and didn't deliver on. Then they'll say, You're no stronger than we are. You just got grabbed by the nap of the neck and hauled off. Your prompt pomp is brought down to the grave, and the noise of your vials, the worm is spread under you, and the worms cover you. Who then it tells specifically who it's speaking of. How are you fallen from heaven, O Hellel? Lucifer is not in the Hebrew here. The Hebrew word is Hellel. Hence the name Go to hell. Go to hell hell. Uh, that's where it came from. So Lucifer means bringer of light. Satan has never been a bringer of light. That's Christ. He's the light bringer. So this is misused. Uh, Protestants who translated this didn't understand that hell is simply the grave. And Satan has been trying, Hellel has been trying to put us in the grave. So they said, Lucifer, bad translation. H-E-L-E-L, Hellel. O Hellel, son of the morning, how are you cast down to the ground which did weaken the nations? Can't be speaking of Christ here. He's never weakened the nation. He's never weakened anything. He's always strengthened and brought up. So the very context shows you that this is the one who caused grief on the earth, who is put away, and people rejoice that finally their oppressor is gone. And he is the one who's weakened the nations, not Christ. For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven, I will exalt my throne above the stars of God, I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation on the sides of the north. God's throne is to the north. North star points that way. And it is Satan who tried to take over God's throne. So that's who this is talking about. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. Yet you shall be brought down to Sheol, to the sides of the pit. There's two different 
rendition. Sheol is a, a Hebrew term for the grave or for eternal punishment. They that see you shall narrowly look upon you and consider you, saying, Is this the man that made the earth to tremble, that did shake the kingdoms, that made the world as a wilderness and destroyed the cities thereof, that opened not the house of his prisoners? All the kings of the nations, even all of them, lie in glory, everyone in his own house, but you are cast out of your grave like an abominable branch. And as the raiment of those that are slain thrust through with a sword, they go down to the stones of the pit as a carcass trodden under feet. That's the way Satan will look to people. He is totally deposed, put down, put in a prison. Now this is just Revelation uh, 20 put in more specific terms, if you will. There it just says he'll be taken by Christ and bound a thousand years and he'll receive the nations no more till he's loose for a little while, we read. This just describes that, how Christ is going to take him and put him down and people will have a reason to rejoice that he who, pers who persecuted the nations will be put out. Uh, Verse 21, prepare slaughter for his children for the iniquity of their fathers. They that do not rise, nor possess the land, nor fill the face of the world with cities. Could be some reference to not only his physical followers, but maybe even the demons who are also bound. Because if Satan isn't around to deceive, neither will the demons. For I will rise up against them, says the eternal of hosts, and cut off from Babylon the name and remnant and son and nephew, says the Eternal. Anyone associated with Satan and his system is going down. I will also make it a possession for the bittern and pools of water, and I will sweep it with the besom of destruction, says the Eternal of hosts. we got all these Satan worshippers in Hollywood, in Washington, D.C., in New York, other places who are now more and more openly saying they worship Satan. And they go around with his symbols and various things that they use uh, to show that they're Lucifer worshippers, not Lucifer, Hellel worshippers. Can't they read this? Can't they realize that he's going down and they'll go down with him? They're not paying attention, apparently. Verse 21, the Lord of hosts has sworn, saying, Surely, as I have thought, so shall it come to pass, and as I have purposed, so shall it stand. That I will break the Assyrian in my land. Well, the Assyrian's coming in, and he's going to take God's land, this land, captive. And he will break the Assyrian here. We have many scriptures to go back that up in early Isaiah and Micah and other places. And upon my mountains tread him underfoot, then shall his yoke depart from off them, and his burden depart from off their shoulders. So the Assyrian is not only probably the Russian, but all of those associated in that alliance of bricks and others who are now joining it, who are coming against us. And they're 
grip on us, their slavery over us will be broken. This is the purpose that is purposed upon the whole earth, and this is the hand that is stretched out upon all the nations. He's going to break them all. He said that he will bring vengeance upon those whom he used for what they have done. He's going to use them, but they were sinning as they did it. And he'll take care of that too. His hand is stretched out. Who shall turn it back? Can't be done. In the year that King Ahaz died was this burden that we're just reading here. But it's about the end times and the day of the Lord. Rejoice not you, O Palestina, because the rod of him that smote you is broken. For out of the serpent's root shall come forth a cockatrice, and his fruit shall be a fiery flying serpent. And the firstborn of the poor shall feed, and the needy shall lie down in safety. And I will kill your root with famine, and he shall slay the remnant. So those who have oppressed us, those who have put people down, are going to be cut out, pulled out root and branch, and God will begin to feed the poor, the weak, the meek, the humble, who have been humbled by everything that's happening. <clears throat> Howl, O gate, cry, O city, you hold Palestina, are dissolved, for there shall come from the north a smoke, and none shall be alone in his appointed times. So he says, you're going to be destroyed. I will take care of the Assyrian who destroyed you. But make no mistake, he sums this up, it is coming. He reminds at the end of the chapter. What shall one then answer the messengers of the nation? What's the answer to all this? What do we derive from it? What conclusion do we come to? Well, America is going to be destroyed. Then the nations that destroyed America, God is going to destroy. And the only ones that are left are the meek and the humble and the poor and the wretched. What do you make of that? All right. What shall one then answer the messengers of the nation? That the Lord has founded Zion and the poor of his people shall trust in it. A very small remnant will have come through belief, confidence, and now absolute trust in the Almighty. Those who dwell in Zion. It's the only place. They're the only ones that are going to come out of this alive, unscathed, and blessed. Be thankful for the opportunity you have.